Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. My name is Jeff, and I'm joined Enjoy. as always by my good by my good friends Richard. Hello. And Michael. Howdy. Richard and Michael debate. They deliberate. They dance. They twirl. They twist. They shine. Um, gotcha. This time around, we're discussing the Mount Rushmore of henchmen from the Dutch word hinche, which means not the real bad guy, but the <laughs> custodian that cleans up for him or does his dirty work. Uh, who chose it? This was my topic. Oh, and um, I, I chose this because, yeah, the other night, um, uh, Emily and I were watching uh, a, a not very good movie. It wasn't bad. It was just not very good. We were watching Karate Kid Part 3. Oh. And the main bad guy of the movie is not um, Kreese, you know, the leader of the Cobra Kai. It's like his Vietnam War buddy. And this oh. guy is the most classic, like, late 80s evil bad guy you can think of. He's, like, big and rich and is into dumping toxic waste and has a long black ponytail and is, like, smoking a huge cigar and he's just kind of, like – a real big asshole. <laughs> but then he's got like these really, he's has like these two henchmen that are just like terrible. They're like bad henchmen. They're just kind of scummy underlings. And I immediately, uh, I thought, Oh God, I could think of a million better henchmen than these two. Yeah. Just dipshits. They're just like yeah. dipshits. And that's what was like so disappointing. I mean, he was disappointing as a bad guy in the movie, like overall was disappointing. But like, I thought, oh god, what about good? What about a good henchman? What about someone mm-hmm. that really comes in, steps up, and is just like, ah, you know what? This is who I want on my team. Yeah, yeah. You feel like sometimes you get a henchman. He's a he's a dollar store version of the bad guy. Uh, yeah. And in in a a B genre film, the bad guy usually isn't that. Uh, dimensional to begin with so here's this person I think, who's <laughs> i think if if you've gotten to the point where you're like a bad guy who needs a henchman you're like effectively like the ceo of a company where you personally don't do a whole lot you have a lot of like big ideas mm-hmm. and you need like people to just kind of execute your big ideas and like you know go kill somebody or like you know go do this and that but me i got i got bigger things to do and a good henchman, when you're, you know, when you're a bad guy, that really, that really sets you apart. <laughs> well, I would love to discuss as we go along the the varietals that uh, are available therein for henchmen. You know, some seem to be a kind of a bad guy in in the making. Uh, mm-hmm. Some seem to be this kind of mirror. Uh, funhouse weirdo version of the bad guy or or. Uh, uh, some just kind of the big, big dumb idiots that Jet Li fights in the first reel of the film uh, on his way to the bad guy. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, some, so, some definitely are like the sub boss before you get to the main boss. And some are yeah. just like, uh, that guy's out there just doing things. Mm-hmm. I, I fascinated. Some of them end up turning, uh, turning, turning good, you know, and then we, we mm-hmm. can see them redeem themselves so uh so uh, michael thunkett richard starts what do you got all right yeah so uh this going with this topic i thought there was no way i couldn't have a james bond uh, oh yeah mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. he just had to and yeah i don't know if he's the best in terms of quality of his work 
But he is, I think, just about the only James Bond henchman to make appearances in more than one movie. Mm -hmm. I'm talking, of course, about Jaws. Awesome. By Richard Kyle. Yeah. Um, first appeared in the 19... <clears throat> excuse me. First appeared in the 1977 film The Spy Who Loved Me as one of Stromberg's uh, henchmen and uh, makes a reappearance in Moonraker, the silliest of all James Bond yes, movies. Yes, yes. Which is why I love it so much. Mm -hmm. um, as uh, the main uh, henchman for Hugo Drax. Um, and he is one of the, the henchmen who, as you just alluded to, does have his redemption arc in Moonraker and winds up um, turning the tables on Drax and working with, with James Bond to defeat him. Yeah. Um, and winds up getting a hot French girlfriend along the way. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, Jaws to me, I, partially because he was from Fresno and growing up near Fresno, Anytime anyone who is an actor or some famous celebrity that was from the area, you, you there was like news stories anytime one of his movies appeared, like like premiered, it was like a big deal. So to have the guy who played Jaws from James Bond movies be from Fresno was like a big deal. Hey, that's cool. Yeah, but I just even even beyond that, I, I just love I love the look of Jaws. They had to go to through several layer levels of prosthetics to be able to get his metallic cog-like grinding teeth right. Yeah, and it's just such a and I, and I love the idea that he's essentially indestructible. You know, unlike a lot of other uh, James Bond henchmen, who there's kind of a pattern where Bond struggles to defeat him and then mm -hmm. figures out a way to at the last minute. With Jaws, it's more that just he keeps defeating him and he keeps coming back because he is basically Wiley e. Coyote. Yeah. <laughs> in The Spy Who Loved Me, Jaws survives, and I'm quoting from Wikipedia here, Jaws survives an Egyptian structure's collapse on top of him, being hit by a van, being thrown by from a rapidly moving train, sitting in the passenger seat of a car which veers off a cliff in Sardinia and lands in a hut below, a battle underwater with a shark, and the destruction of Stromberg's lair. That's just in the first movie. <laughs> there's just there's twice as much stuff that happens to him in the second movie, and every time, if you remember, like he would, he you know he would parachute out, and his parachute wouldn't work, and he'd crash through a circus tent and land on a trapeze and go springing off. And whenever he would land, he would just kind of dust himself off, straighten up his tie, get up, and just move out of there. Yeah, that is, I mean Fantastic. that's a great that's a great investment in a henchman. Like, you know, some henchmen are a dime a dozen and they come in and you get killed and like, okay, you know, well, I spent all this money on the onboarding process of getting him through HR and, you know, he's hired and he's mm -hmm. going through on healthcare. But like when you like invest in a guy that's indestructible, like that's a long term investment that really pays off time and again. That's well, great. The, yeah. And the fact that Hugo Drax in Moonraker basically hires hires Jaws as a free agent after mm -hmm. uh, after Stromberg's death. Um, I just love this idea that there's this bullpen of henchmen that are out there. Yeah. <laughs> and that if, when, when Bond defeats 
one bad guy, that means that there's 20 henchmen who are now available for all the other bad guys to try and mm-hmm. sort through and figure out if there's any that are worth keeping and which ones. <laughs> are well, that, that is something I, I have been fascinated for a long time. The, the HR recruiting talent acquisition process for all these, not just <laughs> bad guys, but the evil empires, you know, evil agencies, shield or Hydra specter, you know, all these organizations. It's, have, it's mostly uh, Zip Recruiter, I think. Having, you think so? <laughs> having gone through a job search recently, there's enough <laughs> jobs that are listings that are very, yeah, very obliquely worded. But like, but I like think, they, I think they're hiring for. I think they may be hiring for an international crime. You'll see board. banks of computers with like highly trained, you know, Java applet programmers and all these people who are evil Java app, applet programmers. Evidence. Well, evidence. that's the thing that the algorithm just captures everything, whether you have like Java in it. If you're yeah. evil or or good or neutral or chaotic or whatever, like as long as Java's in there, they're going to just start yeah. recommending you for whatever <laughs> jobs out there. So. <laughs> I do, I do like that idea that Drax is like, you know, Stromberg before he died recommended you. <laughs> right. Do you, you um, have to give references? Sorry, yeah. all of my references are dead or in They're jail. Dead. <laughs> yeah, don't it's, mind uh, the bullet holes. Don't mind the bullet holes through my bullet holes through my CV. It's like <laughs> Richard Keel was, for all intents, I heard a really sweetheart of a guy like Andre the Giant, kind of just a just a gentle giant, very wonderful person. And seeing his uh, um, Wikipedia said that he was for two years worked as a night school math instructor in Burbank, California. <laughs> Can you imagine? Here you are near the f- film capital of the world and you're schlepping around as a, as a you know, seven foot, people. two inch gorilla is t- teaching yeah. fractions. You're yeah. Like, teaching what? fractions. And that he, he uh, booked the role of the incredible Hulk and, shot a little bit uh before um they realized no we don't want tall hulk we want muscly hulk (laughs) right rid of him it's so funny oh what a fun uh first pick yeah as a kid i think the the more bond was the first one that i saw in cinema so i remember sitting through uh moonraker twice because of some of the lascivious um makeout sessions in in uh, space that i wanted to see again sure uh yeah, love Jaws in that. Okay, cool. Uh, not it's it's kind of uh, when you said Bond, I was just about type to type odd job, but uh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't pick him. Uh, Winfield, what do you got? Okay, well, uh, this uh, unfortunately Jeff isn't going to um, really tickle your your. Oh, let's skip. Main, okay, your Richard, main spot gonna, right what here. A, what a winning strategy you've got, Michael. <laughs> no, 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 listen. Uh, the Joker and uh, all of the 66 Batman villains had like this great team of just like goons and henchmen. And they were all oh, like, yes. you know, named, you know, for whatever dastardly deed was being done that week or whatever yeah. the penguin was up to. It was always like, oh, come here, fish and yeah. uh, ice cube and uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, salmon or, what, you know, some dumb fish themed thing yeah. that the penguin was doing or um, and the Joker had his um, team of goons. But the one that really stood out was Bob the Goon from the 1989 movie Batman. Oh, yeah. Was Tim it Larry Daryl or Daryl? Who, who, which dude was it? Uh, it was um, – I can't remember his name. I'll have to look it up. But 
it, but it's this guy that he's like, you know, always forever the bit player. And um, mm. as a henchman, you're always a bit player. But yeah. what I liked about Bob, uh, you know, the character of Jack Napier, who becomes Batman or becomes um, the Joker and, you know, goes on to have his Joker crime spree, is that Bob is with him the entire way. He's with him when he's just kind of like this gangster working for Jack Palance's mega gangster character. He kind of has his back from the get-go and he turns into like his number one goon. And the number one thing a goon must do ultimately is just whatever, whatever the boss wants. And he does it all from like taking pictures and uh, you know, uh, I'm convinced that Bob is the one that set up all of the Joker's um, quick turnaround uh, henchman gear. Cause like, he gets turned into the Joker on like, you know, midnight on a Friday. And that Sunday, all of his guys are decked out in great graphically designed Joker costumes and purple, everything, this and that. I think Bob is the one that really kind of, he's a graphic, I'm sure he's like a graphic designer <laughs> as well as a goon. I'm sure he's a guy that like knows all the contacts to get like jackets made and all of the merch. Yeah. And then he does the thing that yeah. all, henchmen have to do do you, do you want red their... roses or tea roses well there's a yeah. difference yeah he's 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 the thing that he does the thing that all henchmen must do for their boss you know in the end of the day is get killed for him and oh, yeah. he does it the joker's the one that kills him he just shoots him in the face he just kills him yeah. right out because the joker's crazy but he's just this guy that was there from you know through hard times and good times and crazy times and imagine just having to be the henchman to a crazy person who does who says things that don't make sense and you're just like man i gotta figure out what he means by that that's yeah. gotta be tough <laughs> so god bless you bob the goon wherever you are now yeah yeah bob, bob the goon bob the goon played by tracy walter there you go not Thank one you. of the uh daryl's oh he wasn't no. or but or he you might know him from uh repo man oh uh, yeah the, uh, he also was in a bunch of John Jonathan Demme films. Mm -hmm. Also, nine different films with Jack Nicholson. Wow! Holy shit! So he really was. He was like Jack Nicholson's henchman. He was just yeah. there on the set with him. Exactly. That's hmm. really interesting. That's in that, that's wild. Yeah, I, um, the the world of I forgetting that Batman became so campy and colorful that it's it's sometimes. Uh, easy to forget that he's a detective. He works in crime in the seedy underbelly of an urban uh, metropolis. And I was watching a mob thing on Netflix, and just like every other, oh, this was about New the mob in New York. And one after another, goons and and <laughs> you know like Louis the 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 duck, you know, and everybody's got a nickname, and they're all each one more colorful than the one before, and they're usually missing part of an ear or part of a nose and stuff like that. And so, so Batman didn't have to. Dick Tracy didn't even have to exaggerate it too much for with mumbles and <laughs> mush face and all this. Flat guys. top and flat top, face. Yeah, yeah. I do like too that his his the toy that came out with him was just like, it was so pathetic. It was just like, it was really just Bob the goon. And like, what do you do? Like, can you imagine if that was the one that you got for Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I want a Batman toy. And somehow your mom just has just the dollar bin at Target and comes back. <laughs> and it's just like, I got, 
Bob, Bob the Goon. Goon. I wanted oh, Batman no. with a retractable utility belt, and now I gotta. <laughs> how, how am I gonna pretend with this thing? Bob Some the Goon of the... with his removable hat or whatever he has. <laughs> Some of those Prince album cuts were kind of esoteric, you know. So I'm surprised he didn't do Goon Dance or, you know, Bob. <laughs> The Bob oh my God! Can you imagine? Can you imagine the Trevor tre- treasure trove of like unused B sides that Prince had? That seriously, yeah. the Bob the Goon <laughs> song. That's incredible. Oh, I love it. Uh, man, Freddie. All right, you you mentioned Jeff. You you right. mentioned all of the uh, various New York mafia goombas yeah. and uh, henchmen over the years. Mm-hmm. In real life, I'm picking one from the cinema and the uh, the book. Um, I am going with Luca Brasi oh, from awesome. The Godfather. Yeah, um, he's only in the movie for a little while, but he uh-huh. boy does he make a big presence. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, ending the olive oil war with his reign of terror. Yeah, um, you know, showing up to uh, Connie Corleone's wedding and basically outstaging every, upstaging everybody mm-hmm. by giving uh-huh. this giant wads of cash to her as, as, as a uh, wedding present and then getting his uh, head carroted off. Yeah. So kind of a, kind of a mixed bad bag for my guy, Luca, but I just, <laughs> I, I think that he's, look, he's somebody who is so violent that even Vito Corleone is a little intimidated by him. Yeah. Not just a little bit. He's he recognizes that he's got a psychopath uh-huh. working for him. At the same time, it's the type of industry where having a psychopath working for you can actually pay dividends. Yeah, yeah. you got to have one on the payroll. Yeah, exactly. So I, I that's that's why I'm choosing Luca Brasi. I think that he is the ultimate the ultimate intimidation factor. Mm-hmm. Which is- Was he? Was he the one that um, the Godfather sent in to, like, pretend like he was switching over? Yes. Okay. Yes. See, th- there's there was the big that was the big error in um, Don Corleone's master plan was like, don't send the biggest dumbest guy to like yep. go act and pretend. It's like uh, I've we've seen it. You need the guy, the subtle, the subtle twitchy guy, not the the big dungaloot that you can barely kill with a piano wire. Exactly. That, that was a uh, tactical uh, misfire on, on Don Corleone's part, no doubt about it. Well, he was getting older. He was slipping, so. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And if you know that in the backstory of him in the novel is actually far, far worse than what they show in the movie. Uh, in the novel, he winds up uh, impregnating a, uh, a prostitute who he then kills immediately after he gives birth and forces the midwife to throw the baby in the furnace. Oh, geez. So they actually made Luca Brasi a lot more likable character in the movie at, you know, as likable as a, uh, as a murderous psychopath gangster could possibly be than they did even in the book. Yeah. I think when you don't, when you don't show him actually killing anyone on screen, it's hard to be like, okay, how, how, how dangerous was this guy? In re, you know, within right. the, within the context of the movie, they can explain how bad he was. But if you don't see him, um, you know, putting a baby in a furnace. Mm. And the guy who mm. played him, Lenny Montana, was a uh, former Corley, or former Colombo family enforcer. Oh, really? Oh. So yeah, he brought some uh, definitely brought some realism to the part. Oh. 
Yeah, that's uh, there is a little bit of a story about him um, interacting with the mob while on the payroll of the film. So that's pretty interesting. I imagine there was a lot of, uh, I know there was a lot of interaction with the studio and with um, Coppola. Um, the mob didn't want to be portrayed. They didn't want the word mafia in it. They didn't want all that stuff in it. So, wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, uh, so he was also, I know as a, I'm just reading the Wikipedia like everybody else are, he was a wrestler beforehand. Big yeah. career as a wrestler. <laughs> exactly. So a... Uh... Vern Gagne broke his leg. Varied career, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's a good good choice. Uh, I think he was one of the characters supposed to be in two, but like, forget what happened. Um, uh, Winfield, what do you got? My second choice, I got a three for one. It is the three Storms henchmen from the Wing Kong gang in Big Trouble in Little China. From oh, the wow, 1986 nice. movie, um, cool. Thunder, Rain, and Lightning all work for um, Lopan, who is the um, kind of ancient uh, Chinese uh, kind of gangster overlord, runner of the mm-hmm. uh, Wing Kong uh, gang, and you know, capturer of uh, green-eyed uh, beauties from across the world, not only from uh, San Francisco but uh, from mainland China, and um, you know, they, as their namesakes uh, say, they can control thunder, they can control rain, they can control lightning, and they cast it about and destroy this other rival street gang. And uh, what I do like about them is that there are moments when you see Lopan not dressed up in his like ceremonial uh, kind of Chinese godlike. Um, outfit but you see him kind of like rolling around in like just a wheelchair looking you know 112 years old and decrepit yeah. and like all three of the guys are just like yeah they're wearing like business suits and they're just they kind of look like faux gangsters like when they're not dressed up like raiden from mortal Kombat. i i like that there's a variety of how they're depicted they're like sure we're kind of we're storm gods that have these martial art abilities but at the same time, you know, we also can wear pinstripe suits and just push a yeah. guy around in a wheelchair. There, mm-hmm. it's it's the, um, you know, a good henchman can do it all. <laughs> yes, I they love can the shoot, versatility. <laughs> they can shoot lightning, but then you know they need somebody that m- might be changing a bedpan. I mean, who knows? We don't see it, but I can assume. I can, I can kind of figure out that they've kind of they run the gamut of uh, of uh, tasks for him, and you know, mm-hmm. ultimately they all. Like a good henchman does, they give their life to uh, Lopan to try to protect him. Um, yeah, Michael, I almost um, I almost put on my list was Al Leong, the actor who played mm. the uh, the Hatchet Man of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the three, who is just somebody who has been a henchman in so many movies. Uh, oh, for sure, Die Hard. Die Hard. Uh, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. You mentioned Lethal Weapon, mm-hmm. Scorpion King, They Live. Yeah, um, he was Genghis Khan, of course. In yeah, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Bill and Ted's, like yeah. Most people probably know him from. And that's just somebody who's he was just like a stunt man, who just keeps getting cast in these kept getting cast in these roles as as henchmen and just wound up becoming the go to henchman in Hollywood mm-hmm. for the eighties and early nineties. He just had a he just had a good look. He 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 wore the mustache really well. 
and um, the combo mustache, long hair thing. Uh, and he, you know, he, pull off. yeah, he was, um, he wasn't big and imposing, but he looked always just kind of dangerous. Yeah. Good choice. But you didn't choose him. So. But I didn't choose him, so fuck it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so no good choice. That's there. an interesting, um, I, th- I think, you know, if there's a theme emerging, the versatility and ultimately the futility or understanding the ultimate ah. sacrifice that they will have to to pay. Um, but yeah, you, you're talking about even just like kind of a, a sartorial versatility do you look good in pinstripes? <laughs> okay, you're hired. <laughs> Can you rip out a guy's heart and show it to him before he dies? But I mean, I do. I do love at the end uh, or close to the end. Um, uh, I think Thunder is the one that uh, he is so uh, so overwhelmed with the loss of his master that he literally like blows himself up. Like his he's so overwhelmed that he likes starts to expand and turn this this big hot air balloon sort of. Uh, was it Veruca Salt that turned into a giant blueberry? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, this sort of uh, the the ant from Harry Potter, Veruca Salt, sort of just expands and explodes and eventually just blows up because he's mm-hmm. so so overwhelmed with grief. That's a good henchman. But they can't go on without you. That's an interesting observation too. It's like how what kind of spell uh, do they have? Think of all the people who will. Uh, give up their entire party or their entire uh, lives for the current uh, leadership here in the U S like, what will these yeah. people do? What will these people do for this person? They'll, they'll do, do everything ultimately. Um, God, or they're that, so blinded what, by a sense of mission. What an incredible, what an incredible uh, catalog of henchmen does this. Oh yeah. <laughs> Trump president. Oh, yeah. have All of them are these goons who are, Oh Yeah killing themselves to fall on the dagger at every moment, every lie that has yeah. been told, every misstep has been uh, just whitewashed and passed over. And they're like, oh, oh what? A, I, wish I, was, all, I wish I was smart enough to think of choosing any one of the assholes that work for this guy. And they're all so poorly written. Everybody's just like such a first draft mm-hmm. of a bad movie. Like this is like they're all straight to all these movies opened in the drive-in and then are in VHS. All these characters, the, the cheap suits, the ugly haircuts, everybody just looks so poorly developed. <laughs> oh. Okay, it is time to take a break and to invite you, the audience, to uh, be part of the dialogue out on social media. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let us know topics that you'd love to hear us discuss in the future. Let us know examples of topics we've discussed in the past that you think were better than what we gave uh hindsight is 2020 let us know what you saw that we missed do us a solid go back download rate and review past episodes on the podcast listener thing of your choice we'd really appreciate that it'd be super cool if you did all right so my third choice is grover gill who Mm -hmm. you may not know the name but you would know him if you saw him he is scott farkas's uh right hand man Oh, yeah. Story. Hell yeah. Oh, wow. And I made this choice because every school, I'm, I'm convinced, every school in every class had this kid, a little <laughs> twerp who thought he was tough because he was friends with a school bully. Yeah. Every school bully had like the little, remember from the the Looney Tunes, it was like the big oh, dog. But, yeah, it was Butch and uh, I can't remember the other one. I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah. 
but yeah, a little yippy dog that would, yay, mm-hmm. hey, come on, come on. That was basically, there was one of those kids in every school. And I think the Christmas story did a fantastic job of showing, showcasing who this kid was um, as the sort of sycophant and the hanger on to the, uh, the actual bully of Scott Farkas. I mean, this kid's like, it was a uh, tiny twerpy kid. Spike the bulldog and Chester the terrier. There we go. Yeah. Spike and Chester. Yeah. Great, great choice. Richard. Cause it's always, uh, it's always like the, it's always the little guy who's it. it it's the um, kind of pilot fish that's swimming along in the wake and hanging on to the shark that is just trying to pick up scraps. Yeah, I, you can see that almost like in the in the the final fight scene, when 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 Scut is just getting his ass handed to him, and uh, Grover's hey, come on kid, okay that's that's <laughs> enough. Like you could almost see like his life flashing before his eyes. It's like wait he gets a second, pushed. I, I have he gets built, pushed down. Yeah, I have built my whole reputation and my whole persona on being best friends with the toughest kid in school. This is all getting washed away. <laughs> yeah. One, one, one fair swoop. Yeah. He, he has uh, no sponsor anymore in, in his activity. Just it's hung, the dude, hung up to drive. The dude, uh, the dude, the only big thing he did after, other than that, um, Anya, Yano Anaya, Yano Anaya as Grover Dill also played the young Michael Anthony in the music video for Hot for Teacher. That's pretty awesome. Hey, that's a you know, it's quality not quantity, Michael. Yeah. Uh, Jeff. <laughs> that is a fun aspect of it. Do you do you feel like he is waiting Grover Dill is waiting to hit a growth spurt or to find some kind of uh moment where he can develop into the stature of a Scott Farkason and then ultimately take over or sorry, Scott Farkas, or do you think um, he's just kind of enjoying this trip for a while? You know, I wonder, I wonder if he, he actually sees this as his future, his vocation, or he's just kind of so intoxicated with the power he gets from standing next to the big kid. I think it's, no, more, the, it's more the latter. Yeah, for sure. He doesn't have to do that much work. I think that's it. You know, the muscle guy is the guy that, that pushes him around. He's the guy that just, you know, every once in a while he's told off, but he's just going to swim in the wake of whatever, whatever kid gets knocked down, he's going to get a good kick in. Yeah. And then, you know, the you know, for every dollar that he steals, he's going to get 10 cents and here, yeah, that's a piece of gum. That's a candy yeah. bar. That's good <laughs> enough. enough. For him, yeah. I also I'm appreciated not... that they styled him like a young Robert Blake from Beretta. He does. <laughs> well, he's just and the jacket yeah. and everything. He's yeah. just missing a cockatiel on his shoulder. <laughs> exactly. What what is it in it for Scott Farkas though? Does he have somebody to like carry his extra? You know, if he if he beats up a kid and he's got a bunch of loot from it, does he does he need somebody to carry his extra swag? Like what? I think I, I, I think it's more that if you're going to be a bully, you need to have somebody to laugh about it with afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Like it's no fun to be a bully and humiliate somebody and then walk away by yourself. Yeah. And not be able to share the Schadenfreude. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Um, so I think I think that's what that's probably in terms of how the relationship works. That's why Scott Farkas needs somebody like Grover mm-hmm. Dill. Yeah. 
I, I, it would kind of delve into the psych, not to over psychoanalyze these two dimensional characters, but do you feel like Scott Farkas is really actually acting up because he needs approval that he's not getting at home? Uh, I don't know. Huh. I don't know, man. Okay. All right. Uh, Winfield. Okay. My third choice is uh, Gogo Yubari from Kill Bill Volume 1. And um, she is one of Orenishi's goons, uh, bodyguard, assassin, whatever you want to call her. Uh, but she's the one that is um, in the schoolgirl outfit that's swinging the, and I had to look it up, a meteor hammer. Uh, around to go uh, kick Beatrice's kiddo's ass. And she really does for the majority of the fight with her. It is this incredible uh, kung fu battle sequence where she is just so dangerous and then also looks... It's such a very... It's a very classic um, kind of James Bondy sort of um, henchman assassin character where... They just have this very specific look, and they have a very specific skill, and they just are so dangerous in every aspect. She ultimately, you know, meets her maker and gets her comeuppance and is killed by um, uh, Beatrix Kiddo, as they all are. But um, I loved the performance. I loved how uh, classically Japanese schoolgirl demure she was, at the same time just being deadly and psychotic i loved like this the dual nature of like whatever she was the um actress uh, i'd only seen her in one thing before that and then have never seen her anything after but i believe she just went on to do a lot more uh, japanese um movies she was in um battle royale in a kind of similar role where she was just a very violent and deadly and uh, just kind of a little bit psychotic as well. Um, but there's definitely something that was captured by Quentin Tarantino in that movie where she's just, she's just this henchman that is sent in specifically to kill uh, kiddo. And then she doesn't because nobody can kill her, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, I've only seen the film once. I, mm. yeah, I, I, I know that, I know that uh, Richard too is not a fan of them. Um, yeah, of good boobies. So uh. yeah, that's true. <laughs> I got I got I got yelled at by my by my wife for uh, laughing at inappropriate moments during it because I thought it was a comedy. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I I don't know. I I thought those characters are all really compelling. Um, um. But yeah, that's a what I'm fascinated with is even with uh, John Carpenter and Tarantino as as both being people who take genre films and own them, put their own fingerprint on them. Uh, we'll screw around with uh, scores and things like that to have a distinctive score that's either borrowing from other films in that genre or incorporating, you know, uh, R&B or stuff like that. And for Tarantino to be so knowledgeable and to actually pull characters that feel authentically from that genre while also blending it with uh, 70s crime thrillers and things like that. I think it's super cool. Super cool. I think what's uh, also um, just compelling about her as a, a character is that, like, um, or just in terms of, you know, Oren Ishii, she becomes, like, basically, like, the head of, like, the Yakuza there in Japan. 
and she is as deadly a killer as Gogo is, probably even more so. But I just it's this CEO nature that I'm still kind of obsessed with where they still even as she could go do the job herself, but she still feels the need to send her people out to get her. Like they still need to, it's it's still a task that at some point you get elevated to a certain point and you need a henchman and whatever it is, killing assassinations, all of these things are just they become so beneath you. It's just like, oh, this is for somebody else to do. And yeah, uh, I got to send in the crazy 88s and I got to send this person in and all the, you know, it's so, it's just part of the process. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I really just like that about like the henchmen in general is that in spite of how, you know, final boss it is, you are as a person, you, you can't fight them first. You have to be the last person. Michael, I, I can't help but observe that you your observations regarding the flexibility of the henchmen and their need to fulfill uh, multiple roles and then ultimately pay the biggest sacrifice at the end. Mm-hmm. And then also your observation that it's almost like a that delegation is an important trait for the big boss yeah for sure that is why we have henchmen because they they can't go do everything yeah yeah at at some point at some point uh the big boss whoever has graduated to a point where they've their statue their stature has so uh been so embiggened to borrow a simpsons word that they can't do the little things and they need somebody to do the little things yeah, they've got so much on their plate, and sometimes it's just golfing. And it's just like I gotta go golf. I gotta let up, blow off some steam, or whatever. And then the henchman has to go do the dirty work. And you know, the henchman wants to work their way up in the company. Maybe one day they'll kill the boss and become. You don't see that a lot though in movies of the henchman overtaking. Mm, maybe that should have been a choice of mine. I have to think I, of one. I w- I have been rewatching some of the MCU films, mm. and oh, me too. Captain America and Red Skull and his um, his ascension hmm. through homicide is one of hmm. the themes. Interesting themes. So when we meet him, he is one of Hitler's henchmen, and Hydra is this burgeoning uh, sub organization, uh, sub Reich. <laughs> but uh, yeah, to see and to see uh, his little toady, Doctor. Who who is he? What's it's um, uh, Armin Zola? Armin Zola henching around for him through the whole movie is uh, pretty fun. Um, yeah, I watched. Um, uh, I drank a glass of whiskey and watched that part in Endgame where Cap just goes crazy, eight bonkers with Thor's. Uh, oh yeah, hammer and God, I I can't say that I didn't cry in the middle of an afternoon on a Friday. Oh yeah. It was, it's so well done. The fight is so like the buildup of like watching a bunch of these movies in a row and just seeing this tremendous payoff is so. Yeah. Seeing Cap. uh... I mean, I mean, Thanos Thanos has a ton of henchmen. Mm -hmm. All these movies are replete with henchmen. All the MC movies. You got a guy, they got henchmen. He's got his big kind of thug. He's got his kind of articulate kind of emissary. Mm -hmm. He's got his maul. 
Mm-hmm. He's got all these. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Freddie, your final choice is what? Michael, did you say The Simpsons? I did say The Simpsons. Oh. <laughs> my my oh, last wow. choice is Homer Simpson. Oh. That's interesting. Henchman. To That's Hank not who Scorpio. I thought you were going to say. Yeah. yeah, Henchman to Hank Scorpio. I thought you were going to say Wayland Smithers sure. to uh, Mr. Burns. No, no, no. I, 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 I love what I love this episode of The Simpsons. Sure. Um, yeah. You only move twice, and I just love the idea of the evil genius, the evil overlord, being a really good boss, mm-hmm. like someone <laughs> that you'd really want to work with, work for. Really cares about his employees. Uh, has a free dental care and a stock plan to help you invest. Uh, just a, a, a one of, one of my one of my favorite one I guess one time only characters on The Simpsons. Homer Simpson as the uh, unintended henchman. He doesn't know that he's the henchman. Yeah, exactly. I mean Homer Simpson doesn't know anything. So yeah, Homer being Homer doesn't realize that he's working for an evil overlord. I, I just I love this episode so much, and I just felt, I, I I I feel like they did such a good job of inverting, sort of asking the question that you asked earlier, Michael. Why would these people work for this evil mm-hmm. corporation? It's <laughs> clearly doing awful things, and maybe it's just because they have a a good, you know, they have free free beer on on Fridays and hot dogs and burgers. Maybe it's just a good working environment. I don't know. Or it's maybe it's like, you know that, um, uh, I don't know what it's from, but you've seen the gif of it. It's, it's the two Nazis dressed up and they say, are we, are we, are we the baddies? And it's just like, maybe you're just, you're just, you can't see the force for the trees and you're part of the organization and you don't realize what you're doing is so bad because you've just been, it's just been all you've known. And, you know, Homer is uh, very um, – constantly doesn't know what he's involved in because he doesn't know what he's doing all the time. But he's so – you know, in that episode, he is so eager. He is so finally valued by someone, and his ideas are finally heard right. for no particular reason. I don't think Hank Scorpio actually um, – he's just a – you know, Homer, as everyone is, is just a means to an end. He's, he's a pretty, he was a pretty good boss. Yeah, and I think I think part of it is that when after you've worked for uh, Mr. Burns for however many years that Homer has, yeah, any boss would would seem like a good boss by comparison, hmm. particularly one who who actually seems to care about his employees as Hank Scorpio does. I mean, he buys him the Denver Broncos at the end of the episode for God's sake. That's a thank you for helping him to take over the East Coast. That's pretty good. Just say, yeah, if you could kill somebody on their way out, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Kill a couple people on the way out. That would really help out. Uh, yeah, that's a funny. Is that an Albert Brooks voice character? It is Albert Brooks. Uh-huh. Another yeah. great Albert Brooks Simpsons performance. Yeah. You know, almost presaging a few Albert Brooks um, heavy performances. Um, oh, like in Drive? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, he's I, usually I not, not pay, playing the. the authority character or dark character. So, um, that's a cool choice. Uh, what do you got, Winfield? Wrap it up. Rippity wrap. My final choice, as 
Richard, sometimes it's funny when we both end on a cartoon or both end like our final picks are just one that are just like uh, kind of good guys that aren't really necessarily the worst possible people. But um, Kronk from the movie The Emperor's New Groove, who is the – which I've never seen, and you're going to be mad at me for. Having. I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm I'm just going to say, go watch it. It is a movie that is better than it should be when it's a movie starring David Spade. Yeah. That's but a low David's, bar. That's a low bar, Michael. David Spade plays a very David Spadey character, so it's not like he's got a stretch in his role. And um, Patrick Warburton plays um, Kronk um, in a role that – Really, Patrick Warburton doesn't have to stretch in his role because he plays that role in everything where he's like this good-natured, kind of sweet. uh, He's a cook. He's a Boy Scout. But ultimately, he's the overmuscular henchman to the evil um, Yzma, who's like this advisor slash, you know, sorceress to the current um, uh, emperor of the Incan empire. And um, his character is one where he's kind of just kind of going along. He wants to be appreciated. He works for her. He's not evil. He doesn't quite 100% do everything that she wants him to do. She, he's trying to do his best. And at the end, yada, 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 he ends up helping uh, the good guys out. But, you know, it's kind of like this, Sometimes you're just in the position you're in and you're just trying to make the best. And that goes with henchmen too, whether you're uh, good or bad. Sometimes you're just kind of going along with it. He doesn't, he doesn't quite kill people the way that Yzma wants him to. And he's just kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing here. She turns on him. Spoiler alert. And um, I realized I said spoiler alert after I said the thing that. Yeah, that's a terrible spoiler alert. That's the opposite of a spoiler alert. That's a spoiler. <laughs> I guess that's a spoiler. I guess you just accept it. But like, you know, uh, I don't think Patrick Warburton as a voice actor, as a character is really could ever play bad. He could only play goofy and dumb. Yeah. Kind, kind there's of sweet. Some, there's something about his physical stature that makes him a little bit menacing. And he, he has the bit of the swagger that a hero or a villain would have. And I think the... I mean, he's a guy that played the tech. Yeah. yeah. So, like, he's he, he's uh, he's good at playing a big, dumb, kind mm-hmm. of innocent. Yeah. I think one, one thing that's surprising about uh, Emperor's New Group is how funny it is, considering it was also... Adapt- I mean, it was going to be The Empire of the Sun, I think. So it was going to be a dr- dramatic Disney film, and it just took a turn. So they spent a lot of years trying to make this. They spent like six or seven years and then it eventually came out and it was very different from where they started. Yeah. Yeah. And Michael, you'll be, you'll be excited to know that there is a uh, straight to video sequel called Kronk's new groove. Were you aware of this? (laughs) Um, I haven't seen it Uh, in my uh, mediocre research. I did um, find that Yes, he has his own groove. Yes. New, new or not. Uh, dude, there was, there was an alert. animated TV show, too. So. Yeah. Spoiler alert, he's running a pizza place. Mm. Oh, there you go. Well, he does make, like, uh, uh, spinach puffs in the movie. He is, like, an accomplished um, 
cook, although he does um, screw up some poisoning aspect in the movie, which results in the emperor turning into a llama. Spoiler alert. Whoops. Sorry, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do the spoiler alert on the back end of everything that happens from going forward on this podcast because uh, you know the movie's 20 years old. 20 years old. Can you imagine all these things that are decades and decades old are just disgusting now? You Patrick know, Warburton has been my life for 25 years, which is weird. <laughs> Your uh, a few observations in regards to characters not being fulfilled in their career choice and or not understanding what the role of a henchman entails entirely, not being able to keep up with the versatility like Bob the Goon could. But uh, God, I find it so very good. interesting. He was such a good goon. <laughs> He's such a goon. Uh, the character of Scourge in Thor Ragnarok as played mm. by Carl mm-hmm. Urban, I find kind of fascinating too because he both fits the description of kind of a hero and a villain at the same time, but he's, he's really just kind of an arrogant asshole who loves the spoils of, uh, of war and spo- spoils of being a bully. <laughs> and, and, um, but isn't really down with all the killing and, and uh, immoral activities that are part of that gig and has a last minute redemption towards the end yeah. where he gets it's also you know what many people do when they want to save their own hide is they, they... I, I was trying to think of like the i was uh, trying to think of for one of these picks at least like a good guy who has a henchman but that's not a henchman that's a sidekick i yeah. think that's the big difference is like when you're when you're a bad guy you have a henchman you have someone that goes out and does the things you don't really want to do yourself when you're a good guy you have a sidekick who goes out and just helps you do the things that you can do on your own, but they just assist you in it. The, yeah. the Robin, the, uh, I was trying to think of when you mentioned um, Thor Ragnarok, I was th- trying to think of um, whoever the uh, Taika Waititi character of the, the, the rock guy is. Oh, um, whose name yeah. I know I just watched these movies and I yeah, kills me. Korg, Korg. Yeah. And he has his little, his little um, scissors, like, Aphid yeah. guy that's meek. in a yeah. mech, meek in a mecha suit. And it's like that's the closest you're gonna get to like a good guy henchman. Is uh-huh. like this little guy that kind of helps the other guy that's kind of good. That's just like this bug in a mechanical suit. Mm-hmm. So let's pick some baddies. Let's pick some henchies. Uh, I thought. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the henchies. <laughs> the ninth annual henchy wars. <laughs> <laughs> Hosted by Joe Pantaleano. <laughs> um, so let's go with Jaws. Since, uh, a lot of nostalgia there for Jaws. Love that guy. And um, since it was a three for, let's go with the Three Storms henchman. Because uh, also a three for one's never bad. And since, gosh darn it, it's diversity. I uh, want to go with Gogo Yubari. And um, since I love that Victor, I sorry, I love that Richard acknowledged that children can be evil too. Grover Dill, so the unadulterated mm-hmm. evil of a child, is maybe the most menacing thing. <laughs> yeah. All right, dudes, thank you so much for listening, right. audience. Appreciate it. Yeah. This is always go, the Mount Rushmore podcast. I am normally go, Jeff. Yeah. Go out what? there. Go out there <clears throat> and thank your henchman. If you've got a henchman. Yeah. Just, you know, when it's henchman day, just go appreciate them before they get killed for you.
That's right. Or before you kill them. That's right. Yeah. 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 Tomato, tomato. That was a a great uh, Red Skull thing. We fought to the last man. (laughs) Evidently not. (laughs) He he shoots him. Okay. uh, This is Mount Rushmore Podcast. I, as always, Jeff. Uh, I'm Richard. I'm Michael.